Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. It is everybody's favorite TV game show, the 11 o'clock news hour. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. 11 o'clock news hour, yeah. Can I get anybody? Anybody? Okay, yeah, yeah. 11 o'clock news hour for everyone's favorite TV game show. You'll find it 11 o'clock news hour. I have such fond memories of this show, watching it with my grandfather when I had to stay home from school. Yeah, anyone? Yeah, stay home from school? Yes, thank you. Um, stay home from school. When I was my freshman year of high school, I had, a, I had a knee surgery. I was in a bad snowmobile accident, had a knee surgery. I was out three months, couldn't walk for, for a long time. Anyway, I had to have this machine that basically moved my knee. Uh, if you've ever seen one of those machines that basically when you have knee surgery, they just, you got to sit there and let your knee move. Some of you with knee surgeries are like, yeah, I understand that. I get it. So I just had to sit there and watch Price is Right. And uh, just whatever my grandpa, he had the remote. You know, he didn't give me the remote either. He had the remote. He very much did it. Uh, so um, anyway, longtime game show host Bob Barker was the host. Who remembers Bob Barker? Okay, there we go. Bob Barker, and I am young, but I remember Bob Barker, okay? Bob Barker was the host. It's Drew Carey now, I believe. I think it's still Drew Carey. Anyone can confirm that? Okay, it still is. Anyway, the show is filmed in front of a studio audience, and, and contestants enthusiastically and surprisingly are, surprisingly are chosen at random and run down the aisles and then make their way to the front to guess the price of their favorite sofas, swimming pools, dining room sets, vacations. And when the price is incorrectly chosen, the contestant loses. There's this choreographed, and as I understand it, there's this choreographed groan. There's a sign that says kind of groan or be sad from the crowd. It's all choreographed. At the end of the Beatitudes, there's almost this collective groan that awaits those who are part of the kingdom of God. And it goes like this. This is the end of the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And you'd think, you read the Beatitudes, we've read the Beatitudes, you'd think all these Beatitudes promised a worry-free life, a pain-free life, a life without heartbreak, heartbreak, heartache, and breakups. And we come to this portion, and we might ask ourselves this question, is the price wrong? Is the price wrong? And is the price worth paying? We don't get a trip to Hawaii. We don't get a dining room set or a new swimming pool. Jesus says there's persecution. And the contestants there may not be running down the aisle to get there. The price is right. On the price is right, sure, that's great. Everybody, get up. Man, your name's called. Run down the aisle enthusiastically. I'm doing it. But as it relates to this, as it relates to the kingdom of God, I'm glad you're here today because we'll find out that there's just a greater reward and weight that awaits all of us according to Jesus, according to this text. And he says this, we said this across all the Beatitudes and as we land the plane today, this is what Jesus has said and this is what he said in his ministry before the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the time is fulfilled that the kingdom of God has come near, so very near because of him and in him. And what Jesus brought was the kingdom of God. He was the son of God, brought forth the kingdom. The lame were beginning to walk. The blind were, becoming, were able to see. Troubled minds were finding peace. 
People were long held by demonic spirits were being set free. And people all over Galilee were coming to him and being healed by him. And so we have immersed ourselves in the words of Jesus. And I pray that these words, even for me, even for our church, but for myself, these words would flow out of me. And God, it would be your kingdom that comes even more greatly and more fully into my life. And I pray that for our church as we become kingdom people throughout the Beatitudes. And so these are, it's called the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And uh, those words were spoken long ago on a Galilean hillside, long ago. And I pray they leap off the page for you and for me. I pray that they've spoken long ago on that hillside, but they're found all over the place in our world on emails and postcards and posters and greeting cards hanging on walls and emails. And so I pray that those words would come very real to you. Page 683, if you want to follow along in the Bible in front of you, we'll just go there for for just a minute as we kind of talk through the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Uh, Make sure if you don't have a home church, make sure you find a church preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully and uh, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. As we have seen, as we have walked through the Beatitudes, Beatitudes is these oftentimes these blessings. We'll find all of these Beatitudes is not what the world might call blessed. The world might call blessed as I have worked on my taxes, bigger IRAs, uh, bank accounts, savings accounts, you name it, and the list goes on and on. The world might call blessed. But Jesus calls things that are blessed differently. And as we are part of the kingdom of God, it is a result of what God does through us by his spirit as we live into the world. And so bigger picture of this is, if you have your Bible, you will see that it's, it's part of, those verses are part of a larger group of passages. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's this long sermon, Matthew 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount is what life with God looks like. This is what Jesus calls a Sermon on the Mount, and it's all about a vision for what all of us, what looking like life on the ground, how we walk through this life on earth as we walk through it. And this is kind of what life with God might look like. And so Matthew is the first gospel. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a follower of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to Jesus. He is writing this gospel through eyewitness eyes. He saw Jesus right firsthand and he understands and he's writing this and he's telling the story as if he were there and as if that actually had happened. In fact, Matthew, speaking about taxes, was a tax collector. So, um, you know, there's, there's that as well. And uh, he's a tax collector, um, collective grown there for collecting taxes. But anyway, um, he was a former tax collector and then he got, Jesus called him to be a disciple and then his life changed. And then he's seeing this through real eyes. He's got a front row view of what's going on with Jesus. So we've said this, but Jesus comes, he comes on the scene to present a kingdom not of this world and turns everything right side up. The qualities he blesses only seem upside down because the world and our sinful nature, our old humanity is upside down. And when Jesus comes, he comes on the scene, brings forth a kingdom, what life God looks like. You see, right side up are the meek. Instead of upside down are the meek, actually Jesus is saying right side up are those who practice mercy. Right side up are the pure in heart. Right side up are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are not upside down, but in fact they are right side up. And he's coming to show us what a world would look like if we follow Jesus and follow his kingdom and live into this kingdom as well. This is about ordinary people living and being changed by Jesus. Ordinary people of Western Pennsylvania being changed by the gospel. And these qualities begin to emerge as well. Daryl Johnson's an author and he says it like this, poverty and spirit and mourning and gentleness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, purity, 
purity in heart, peacemaking, and being persecuted are all the result of the Gospel breaking through us. They are consequences of turning around and embracing the reign of Jesus Christ. And these are the qualities that emerge as we embrace the Gospel, we repent and believe in Him. And these are not passive qualities. As we walk through these kind of qualities of what the kingdom life looks like, we might think, man, these are like, this isn't the way the world works. The world works like through the strong-armed people, like through the, the loudest voices, through the people. It's like, man, it's like, pastor, it's like, God, does the world does not work like this. And Jesus says, yeah, this is how my kingdom expands in the world and advances in this world. And so we can read through these qualities and as we have, we've discovered them and looked through them, um, we can sort of like ask ourselves, if we're part of the kingdom, are these qualities emerging as a part of our life? You see, the Beatitudes express what life and walking with God looks like. And these are values of a life expressed of a person who lives under the authority and the reign of King Jesus. These are the kind of people, this is the kind of people Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is going to run through these kind of people. And they are the very ones through whom the kingdom will expand and grow and the very ones through whom Jesus will advance his reign. And these are people just like himself. All these qualities are emerged out of a life of Jesus. So Matthew 5, verse 1, if you have your Bible, you can... Go there, Matthew 5, verse 1. It'll be on the screen too. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we come to this point, the last beatitude here, and it says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. It's like, wow, okay. <laughs> in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying in the kingdom life, Jesus says that persecution is a result of the gospel breaking in and through our hearts. As a result of following Jesus, as a result of him at being king, there will be persecution as a result it's rather a difficult pill to swallow, a sobering one. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And as I've walked through and looked through the Beatitudes, I've walked down each one. I pray that these Beatitudes are expressed in my life. Lord, help me to live into hungering and thirsting for you. Lord, help me to be more merciful. I pray for purity of heart. But being persecuted... So if you reflected on this beatitude, I've, even in my own life, as I walk through this, following Jesus does come at a cost. Following Jesus comes across a lifetime, a lifetime of perseverance, commitment, daily surrender. I was talking with someone this week who had a prayer need and mentioned to me that they needed prayer to strength to resist sin on a daily basis. And I had the thought that Jesus knew full well what he was talking about with you and for me, that it's a daily walk. It's daily take up your cross and follow me. Jesus knew this. It's a daily walk with Jesus. It says this in Matthew 16. Then he said to all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, what? 
daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And the object of Jesus' death, which is the cross, is something that the disciples of Jesus must carry on a daily basis. We must be people who sacrifice for the sake of our own pride. Jesus desires our heart, and we've got to take up the cross daily and follow him. We're told this across Jesus' ministry in John 15. If the world, this is to his disciples, to us even now. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were, one of, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember my word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus says that if the wind was in his face, it will be in ours too. Paul's advice to Timothy was this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Paul warned the Thessalonian church, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. When we were with you, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And he told the Galatians and Antioch, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God, Acts 14. And the last week of Jesus' life, just before he's about to die, he tells his disciples in John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have what? Peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this life, right from Jesus' own words to his disciples, he tells them that we will have trouble. It's right from his own words, but thanks be to God that Jesus fully absorbed persecution the most horrific way to suffer and to die in that day was crucifixion. And Jesus suffered it and he did it and he absorbed it so that we do not have to fear death when we die when God calls each of us home. Life and life eternal is promised for you if you are in Christ. And you are assured that Jesus endured this for you and he did it for you because the love of God is so great. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but to everyone to come to repentance. And he loved us and he loved you and he sent his own son to suffer and to die that way for you and for me so that we would not have to do it and absorb that pain and persecution on the cross. Notice in this beatitude, this is the one beatitude where it is repeated, where Jesus essentially says the beatitude in verse 10 and then repeats it somewhat in verse 11. It's the only one that's really the only one that's repeated only twice and I wonder if he's just trying to kind of get our attention to this even now. He says this twice, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we look just a just a word here, church. As we look at this beatitude, it is important to remember the reason for persecution. They are persecuted because of righteousness, They're, which right relatedness. Righteousness is right relatedness with God and right relatedness with one another. And they are persecuted because of their right relatedness to God as Lord of their lives, because of our commitment to Jesus Christ. It is because of our righteousness with God in which persecution comes. And just a word here. Sometimes we miss the point here to say that if we aren't liked or if people don't like us, therefore it must be persecution. 
But Jesus blesses those who are persecuted because of righteousness, not from unrighteousness. What do I mean? Maybe we are an unkind Christian in the workplace or an unpleasant Christian at work or at home and wonder why we do not have right relatedness with other people. It could simply be the fact that we are actually acting unrighteous. And then we say we are being persecuted because of it. It is vital for us to remember, church, that we are persecuted because of righteousness on account of Jesus. And Lord, forgive us the times where we have acted unrighteous. Forgive us the times where we have dishonored your name. We have not lived accordance to your, to your name, to your glory in us on account of it. Lord, forgive us for the times we do not do that, that we do not live according to that. And forgive us. And we repent and believe and continuously do so. Lord, help us, forgive me, forgive us to help to live rightly with you and rightly with other people. Blessed, as, the, as this goes, blessed and in sync and happy are those who experience this because we live in the world. We don't become the world, but we live into the world. Meaning the world, meaning a world not having reference to God. And as a result of doing that is persecution and insult and evil because of Jesus. Um, and also clarify this as well. I have not experienced persecution. In the West, in our North American context, I have not experienced publicly saying, I follow Jesus Christ and not have had to fear my life saying it. I know mentors of mine and friends of mine who have stood in front of missionaries and Christ followers and have stood on their soil and in their land and have been there to encourage missionaries in other places and yet are faced with the reality that they could, in fact, suffer on behalf of Jesus Christ, could literally and will literally lay down their lives for the sake of knowing Jesus and the sake of telling others about Jesus. And it comes at a cost. That's a cost, and their livelihoods are at stake. The early church knew that as well. And at the time in the late 90s, in the late 90s when the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, was written, Christians had been suffering extreme persecution under the emperor Nero. He turned up the heat on anyone who was a threat to his throne. Some 40,000 Christians killed. Many were fed to lions. Ever since Stephen, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, New Testament, there have been Christians who have lost their life due to the persecution happening in our world. Stephen was the first martyr. We find the only time, church, this is, this is key, the only, the only time, Jesus, only recorded time, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father is in Acts 7, verses 54 and 55. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. At him, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, what? Standing at the right hand of God. And recorded at other points in the Bible are Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. And this point is that Stephen, he's being stoned. He's the first martyr. You can read about it. Acts 7. The only time Son of God is standing. So I want you to know this, church. The point is this, that when you go through persecution, Jesus notices it. The Son of God understands and knows and is there. Ellsworth Callis, he's a late preacher, he talked about this in a reflection. He said, twice a year I'm privileged to teach a select group of Christian leaders from other parts of the world. And in some instances, these people go back to ministries where their lives are at peril every day. Their converts enter the same arena of hazard. 
Each time I leave these students, I remind myself that while I have tried to teach them how to preach, they have taught me how to be a Christian. Just yesterday, just yesterday, I read an article about the Chinese government bearing, barreling down on Christians. 96, 96 million Christians live in China, yet many are being jailed and imprisoned. Christian websites and apps in order to remove Christianity from cyberspace are being talked about, demanding allegiance to the government and to the president. The church is, though, growing mightily in China and growing despite this. You see, we are a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, and we have missionaries that we refer to that we cannot say their name, we cannot tell where they are, and they all, the only thing that we know is that they are called creative access people, faces and names and stories that can never be published out of safety for faith in those countries. I'm reminded as we invite those people into our churches that there's a very real and tangible threat as to where they walk every day. They're very real and tangible threat. People like you and me. And we invite them in. And people out of those countries, out of a burden, they want people to know Jesus and have a burden for knowing Jesus so that others may live and know the one true God through faith in Jesus. God, grant me the courage. Even with I'm fearful, grant us the courage as a church in our North American context that you've granted all of us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a burden to see the lost come to know him. With all of us, the lost has come to know him. Many of us will never go the lengths of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. We will, many of us will never die because of our faith. Many of us will, in fact, be what the early church called red martyrdom versus white martyrdom. Red martyrdom being the result of having Jesus in our lives and our lives being taken, taken from it, namely, would be Stephen from Acts chapter 7. White martyrdom has to do with what Jesus is getting at in verse 11 here. That there are those who will insult you, who will say evil because of who you stand for, for right relatedness with God. And you see, in our North American culture, this can come very subtly or overtly, but it can be both. Sometimes it's verbal harassment. Sometimes it's audible. Sometimes it's whispered. Sometimes it's direct. Sometimes it's an innuendo. Verbal abuse, social ostracism may call for such heroism as braving the arena. Other examples of what believers endure include the contentious worker who has given 20 years, uh, that's not the right word, conscientious worker who has given 20 years of faithful service, but has been repeatedly passed over because the brass are uncomfortable with his, his or her uncompromising ethics, or the family student, I'm sorry, the friendly student who is systematically excluded from conversation because he or she does not rubber stamp all that is said. Or the coworker in the lunchroom is considered dull by his or her coworkers because she doesn't, he or she does not delight in gossip. A person loses their job because their conscience says that the ethics of the institution are wrong. A student is made a mockery in the classroom or lecture hall because he or she has an unintelligent or misinformed faith, simplistic in their reasoning, ill-informed in their faith in Jesus Christ. Unjust criticism and results, loss of status and acceptance, overlooked, slighted, and your commitment to Christ marginalized. Your opinions on life are discounted, overlooked, moral choices trivialized. It's when the, it's when the price feels wrong. But in that moment, it depends on what you and I truly value. And if we value living for the audience and the pleas of the approval of one person, and namely the King of Kings, then the weight of that, this life's order will fall out of place and the blessings of the kingdom will be realized. 
middle school and high school students, if you're here, that is why we come back on Sunday evenings. I, a place to belong, if you're in middle school and high school, that is why we offer a place to come back. It's why several of us make that trip back here in the evenings to spend time, to carve out specific time with you, to encourage you, to build you up, to be with you, to strengthen this generation. I know, listen, I know there are subtle temptations, and I know it's hard. I know it's a difficult place to be. I know the wind is blowing hard in your face at times. And whether it's Snapchat, Instagram, your friends, yeah, get it. There's subtle and overt knockdowns coming at you. And that, over time, chips away. Jesus loves you and sees you. He sees you and loves you. You're a son and daughter of the King. Jesus is worth everything. He loves you. He died for you. And yet I know this isn't also relegated to students. I know for adults this gets personal. I know dear friends who personally became a Christian two friends in particular, and their family ostracized them. There will be people who say and slander you for being a crazy person because of you trying to follow Jesus or say that you are completely misunderstood. I don't know how many of you, I don't know how many of those who will read this passage and may ever suffer physical persecution for their faith. I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't encourage you to court pain, but in a world as volatile as ours, who cannot predict, I cannot predict what the future will hold. But this, I am sure, physical, physical persecution or not, all of us who follow Christ can expect some type of persecution, perhaps in the particular, the sort of thing Jesus had in mind when he spoke about being reveled and lied about. Because when we are truly good, people respond in one of two ways, either by admiring the goodness and seeking it for themselves, or by resenting it and hoping that they can find something in us that they can malign and then thus discredit the goodness. Their response is none of our concern. Our business is to simply follow the Lord and to leave the results to Him. Happy are those who are persecuted because of goodness, who are falsely accused for Jesus' sake. They belong to the noblest, the noblest family in human history, the line of prophets of old and the saints of more recent centuries. They are, as Jesus says, in company with the prophet Jeremiah and Elijah, the prophets of old, and they will be rewarded in heaven one day. A far outweigh a reward that we could ever excuse me, experience now on this earth. Whatever they get or don't get on this world, they have an assurance in heaven and eternity. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness for which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also who have loved his appearing. From 2 Timothy 4. When John Rockefeller died, kind of is illustrating this. John Rockefeller died. He became understandably curious about the size of the man's fortune. The public became curious about the man's fortune. So one reporter who was demanded to find out secured an appointment with one of Rockefeller's highest aides. And he asked the aide how much Rockefeller left behind. And the man answered simply, he left it all. 180 years after the death of Charlemagne, about the year 1000, officials of the Emperor Otho 
open the great king's tomb, where in addition to the incredible treasures, they saw an amazing sight. The skeletal remains of King Charlemagne seated on a throne, his crown still on his skull, and a copy of the scriptures with his bony finger pointed to one verse on the text. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So why is, there, why is persecution a result of the kingdom breaking in? Why would persecution be a given as a part of his kingdom? Well, you see, righteousness disturbs the status quo of our culture. If righteousness does not result in some type of ridicule or persecution, as it were, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus' kingdom life that much different than the world around us? In our North American context, does it really make a dent? And as we've seen in the Beatitudes, they're very, very countercultural to the degree that they ought to bring about some sort of opposition about them. And today we lay in the plane on the Beatitudes, the way of the kingdom of God. As we wrap things up, I want to draw your attention to the next two verses, the next several verses, immediately after the Beatitudes. Just as Jesus on that Galilean hillside long ago, they are met with surprise. And as we've looked on the Beatitudes, there are values of a world around us, which the world around us has become very upside down, and I know many of you would say amen to that, but the world has become upside down. Crowds on that Galilean hillside long ago, in which God calls blessed, do not always coincide with what the world calls blessed. These are interrelated qualities that emerge out of a life and a heart that is captivated by Jesus Christ and his lordship. They, these are the people who know that they are kings of not their own kingdoms, but they allow the king of kings to occupy the throne. They're the ones through whom the kingdom of God will grow and expand. And notice the next few verses of what Jesus says. And Jesus being the master teacher perfectly and knew this and knew this about these verses and perfectly aligns these verses together. It's verse 13. You are the what? Salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the what? Light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 13 says, You are. Not you ought to be or should be. You are, church, the salt of the earth. Salt in those days in the land of the Bible and the, and the land of the Bible was used for many different things. But there is no refrigerators, no Maytag, nothing, no Kenmore refrigerators in that day, right? No refrigerators in that day. The only way to preserve meat in that day was to salt it down or let it soak in a saline solution. Salt was also used on wounds in that day used in a multitude of ways in those days. So I just want to walk through this just for a second. The last beatitude ends with persecution. Salt stings on a wound. Salt stings on a wound. And you see, in a wounded world, when you live a righteous life, the self-inflicted wounds, so-called self-inflicted wounds, are the people around you that they sting when you're with them. Your righteousness brings about persecution and slander and evil. You are the light of the world. And when you live as a light, it reveals all the things in the world that are dark. Hence, there's pushback. 
revealing because you reveal to the world all of its fallenness and brokenness. But all of these Beatitudes, they reveal and express what a kingdom life looks like. They are a package deal intertwined within the heart and emerge from a person whose life lives under the reign and the authority of the king. Being salt and light involves us coming in contact with a very corrupt and dark world. The church must be in contact, as you will, in contact with tasteless food and shine brightly in a dark world. I don't know about you, but I really don't like corn on the cob without salt. Okay, it doesn't taste very good. Some of you are like salt on tomatoes, salt on ice cream, salt on uh, this and that and whatever, salt on watermelon, this and that kind of thing. Being salt and light, coming in contact with a corrupt and dark world. It does us no good to simply turn, if you will, just for a minute, it does us no good to simply turn on the lights in the sanctuary at 8.30 on Sundays, then turn them out at 11.30 on Sundays and go our separate ways, and then the rest of the week keep our own lights off. Jesus is saying that this belongs to the kingdom, that it's people who belong to the kingdom, and we are to carry the light everywhere. We are lights of the world, as Jesus says not just sanctuary lights. We must be the church. We are the church. And he knows we are tempted to hide that bushel, as the song says, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, as my daughter now says, too. Hide it under a bushel. No, she says, I try it and see what she says. Uh, It's great. Now I want to sing that song, but we're not. We'll do that. Okay. Okay. He knows we are tempted to hide the bushel. He knows we are tempted to compromise the infiltration of salt in a tasteless world. And evidently, Jesus suggests here that salt can lose its taste. And unfortunately, the Christian life can just become downright stale. It's dangerous to lose saltiness in our world, our preserving influence in the world. And if we are not salting the world... The world is making us rot. The world will freeze our hearts over time if we aren't heeding the world. We have to ask ourselves honestly if the salt has lost its flavor. We turn back, repent, and fall back on the feet of Jesus. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. The solution is to repent and believe. So how do we do it? Salt and light. How do they become tasteless? How do salt and light make contact in a tasteless and dark world? How does salt and light really influence the people at large, right? Maybe you're like, man, it's 2023. It's hard. It's really hard. Well, salt that completely misses the butter of the corn in the summertime is absolutely useless, in my humble opinion. We must come in contact with the meat. It has to come in contact with the meat that it's trying to preserve. And it feels like the Beatitudes just like won't work or like won't influence such a world. Yet in fact, the way the salt works, it's the way the salt works in and through the world. Church, the poor in spirit, those who know that they need God and are going to go the desperate lengths to deepen that need are salt and light. Those who mourn and those who mourn over their own sin and mourn over the darkness of the world are salt and light. Those, the meek, rather than the rich and famous, rather than the self-made, are salt and light. Those who hunger for thirst for right relatedness with God and with their fellow people are in fact salt and light. Those who practice mercy are salt and light. The people whose hearts are being made pure are salt and light. Those who practice the hard work and necessary work of making peace, salt and light. 
They're all related qualities telling us what kingdom life looks like and how the kingdom life makes its way into our world. You see, the prayer I have for our church is this, that the greatest and most effective witness for Jesus Christ will come being formed in the way of Jesus and for to us to allow the transformative power of the Spirit to infiltrate every fiber of our being and extremity of our lives, that the city cannot help but say to sit up and realize those people have been with Jesus. These people have been with Jesus. Are we bringing out the flavor in life? Salt prevents decay and preserves the meat. When we're in a world that's wasting away and deteriorating morally faster than we could ever keep track, do we blame the meat or the absence of salt? And if Jesus says we're the salt, and if we are the salt, how can we blame the ham for turning green and molding? The onlooking world and the people closest to us do not need Christian celebrities, Christian fame or people of notoriety to validate who we are. They need their fellow Christian, their fellow churchgoer to wrap them around the arms and say, come on and walk with me. To be who they are, to be salt and to be light. As Phil Vischer said, he was the founder of VeggieTales, he once said, the world does not learn about God from watching Christian movies, but from watching Christians. So is the price wrong? It's not. The price is always right. And the price is always right. And there is a reward waiting for us in eternity that the world may not know and the world would not realize. So you, you can even say like this, you, and you can even put like, you, WAC, are the salt of the earth right here in Newcastle. You, WUAC, are the light of the world, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. As we have ended this, we will land the plane with this. We have prayed for this as a church and we land the plane here. Lord, let my heart break for what breaks your heart. Lord, as I draw closer to your heart, the things that break, let the things that break your heart break my heart. Lord, help me to see the things that I dismiss or dismiss or the people I dismiss or the people that I walk by that are hurting and broken. Help me to recognize those people. The folks walking in darkness, the needs around us that in our kingdom bearing and drawing near, we draw near to them and further the kingdom by entering into their experience. Lord, let my affections, my desires for you be aligned above all else and have my purpose be for your glory and to see your glory come and may it begin to shine forth in my life. God's people said together, amen. Worship team, will you come up as we sing one song together? If you'll bow your heads with me as we pray together. Kind Father, we... This is your word, and even as my heart is being stirred, Lord, forgive us if we have the salt's lost a little bit of its tang and flavor, or the light's been a little bit dissipated in our lives. Help us to live powerfully into your kingdom. Help us to live with more awareness of who you are. God, we pray that the love that you have for us, which is so great, which is, uh, spans eternity, which spans across the test of time, Lord, that we would be willing to receive that love that you have. It would knock our socks off. 
we'd be recipients of love today. Recipients of the unending love that you have for each and every person here. That we'd be willing to receive that and let it flow in and out and through us. And we pray that in your very powerful and strong and mighty name. Everyone said together, amen. If you'll stand, we'll sing this song together.